One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. We produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Eric Baker. And today, we are talking about the breakout 6v6 Blizzard hit of Overwatch. The game that took what Team Fortress 2 was doing and brought it into this whole MOBA-esque idea, plus this and that, and it ended up being the one that worked. I mean, this is a game that it kind of took like the esports to another level, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just people are competitive, we're organizing, you know, League of Legends is established, people are becoming more interested in the esports world. This game did such a great job of adapting all that stuff to a an even first person shooter level it definitely did and there were others like it that all came out around the same time but just did not have the gravitas that overwatch had you know from the character development to being more of this bright shiny beautiful future versus you know these dystopias that we were seeing at the time and taking the idea of first person shooter and not making it necessarily real giving it that cartoon aspect. And we see that in games like Fortnite that have continued on that have that shooter element, but make it quote unquote kid friendly. However you want to talk about that, but making it colorful, bright, fun, but still has that competitive edge to it and still has that skill gap that lets people play in the challenger ranking versus bronze, silver, or gold. Yeah, and I think that... Like, especially when we were growing up playing games, I think about a game like Brink, right? I think about mm-hmm. um, other shooters in that style where they're trying to do something different but aren't able to quite capture, like, we want the realism aspects, but we also want to have, like, different powers and we want, sure. we want more strategy within these games. And I feel like Overwatch was the first one to really nailed down a competitive balance it did it came the right time the right place and off really a failure within a small team that had to quickly turn around a game otherwise become the shrek of the (laughs) animation universe to have to get shrek of (laughs) gaming development yeah exactly they avoided it and so overwatch is a 2016 team-based multiplayer first-person shooter developed and published by Blizzard Entertainment. Described as a hero shooter, 
Overwatch assigns players into two teams of six, with each player selecting from a large roster of characters known as heroes, with unique abilities. Teams work to complete map-specific objectives within a limited period of time. Blizzard has added new characters, maps, and game nodes post-release, all free of charge, with the only additional cost to players being optional loot boxes to purchase cosmetic items. It was released for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Windows in May 2016, and Nintendo Switch on October 2019. An optimized performance patch for the Series X S was released in March 2021, and cross-platform support is across all of these platforms. Now, Overwatch was unveiled at the 2014 BlizzCon event and was in a closed beta from late 2015 through early 2016. An open beta before release drew in nearly 10 million players. Overwatch received universal acclaims from critics who praised the game for its accessibility, the diverse appeal of its hero characters, its cartoonish art style, and enjoyable gameplay. Blizzard reported over $1 billion in revenue during the first year of its release and had more than 50 million players after three years. Overwatch is considered to be among the greatest video games of all time, receiving numerous Game of the Year awards and other accolades. The game is a popular esport, with Blizzard funding and producing the global Overwatch League, which we will dive into. And folks, it's time to strap in. This is a beefy episode. It's going to be a longer than our usual ones. Uh, we want to dive into the esports. We want to dive into production. We want to dive into character development. So we're going to present that to you. Yeah, the esports stuff in particular is very interesting to me because we're talking big game investors. You know, Robert Kraft, Patriots owner. Mm-hmm. You've got all kinds of people out there that are in finally recognizing uh, the potential of esports. And so there's definitely a lot to talk about there. But before we do that, let's talk about the studio. Blizzard Entertainment was founded by Michael Morhaim, Alan Adam, and Frank Pierce as Silicon and Synapse in February 1991. After all three had earned their bachelor's degrees from the University of California, Los Angeles the year prior. The name Silicon and Synapse was a high concept from the three founders, with Silicon representing the building block of a computer, while Synapse the building block of the brain. To fund the company, each of them contributed about $10,000, Morhaim borrowing the sum interest-free from his grandmother. During the first two years, the company focused on creating game ports for other studios. Ports include titles such as J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings Volume 1 and Battle Chess 2, Chinese Chess. Around 1993, co-founder Adam told the other executives that he did not like the name Silicon and Synapse, as people outside the company were confusing the meaning of silicon, the chemical element used in microchips with silicone, the materials used in breast implants. By the end of 1993, Adam changed the name to Chaos Studios, reflecting on the haphazardness of their development processes. In early 1994, they were acquired by distributor Davidson & Associates for $6.75 million, or roughly $12 million in today's dollars. Shortly after this point, they were contacted by a Florida company, Chaos Technologies, who wanted the company to pay $100,000 to keep their name. Not wanting to pay that sum, the executives decided to change the studio's name to Ogre Studios by April of 1994. However, Davidson and Associates did not like this name and forced the company to change it 
yet again. According to Morhaime, Adam began running through a dictionary from the start, writing down any word that seemed interesting and passing it to the legal department to see if it had any complications. One of the first words they found to be interesting and cleared the legal check was Blizzard, leading them to change their name to Blizzard Entertainment. And by May, Chaos Studios had its new name on their business cards. And shortly thereafter, Blizzard Entertainment shipped their breakthrough hit, Warcraft, Orcs and Humans, a real-time strategy game in a high fantasy setting. Blizzard Entertainment has changed hands several times since then. Davidson was acquired along with Sierra Online by a company called CUC International in 1996. CUC then merged with a hotel, real estate, and car rental franchiser called HFS Corporation to form Sendent in 1997. In 1998, it became apparent that CUC had engaged in accounting fraud for years before the merger. Sendent's stock lost 80% of its value over the next six months in the ensuing widely discussed accounting scandal. The company sold its consumer software operations, Sierra Online, which included Blizzard, to French publisher Havas in 1998, the same year Havas was purchased by Vivendi. Blizzard, at this point numbering about 200 employees, became part of the Vivendi Games Group. In 1996, Blizzard Entertainment acquired Condor Games of Santa Mayo, California, which had been working on the action role-playing game Diablo for Blizzard at the time. I'm sure some of you are familiar with Diablo. A little Diablo action. (laughs) Condor was renamed Blizzard North, with Blizzard's main headquarters in Irvine renamed to Blizzard South to distinguish the two. Diablo was released at the very start of 1997 alongside Battle.net, a matchmaking service for the game. Blizzard North developed the sequel, Diablo 2, which came out in the year 2000, three years after the original, and its expansion pack, Lord of Destruction, in 2001. Following these releases, a number of key staff from Blizzard North departed for other opportunities. Vivendi made the decision in August 2005 to consolidate Blizzard North into Blizzard South, relocating staff to the main Blizzard offices in Irvine and subsequently dropping the Blizzard South name. Following the success of Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness, Blizzard began development on a science fiction-themed RTS StarCraft and released the title in March 1998. I'm sure our listeners are again very familiar with StarCraft. The title was the top-selling PC game for the year and led to further growth of the Battle.net service and the use of the game for esports. Around 2000, Blizzard engaged with Nihilistic Software to work on a version of StarCraft for home consoles. Nihilistic was co-founded by Robert Hubner, who worked on StarCraft and other games while a Blizzard employee before leaving to found the studio. The game, StarCraft Ghost, was a stealth-oriented game compared to the RTS features of StarCraft. It was a major feature of the 2002 Tokyo Game Show. However, over the next few years, the game entered development hell with conflicts between Nihilistic and Blizzard on its direction. Blizzard ordered Nihilistic to stop work on StarCraft Ghost in July 2004 and instead brought on Swing and Ape Studios, a third-party studio that had just successfully released Metal Arms Glitch in the system in 2003. To reboot the development of Ghost, Blizzard fully acquired Swing and Ape Studios in May 2005 to continue. 
However, while the game was scheduled to be released in 2005, it was targeted at the consoles of the sixth generation, such as the PS2 and original Xbox, while the industry was transitioning to the seventh generation. Blizzard decided to cancel Ghost rather than extend its development period to work on the newer consoles. Yeah, so a lot of that was just such a frustrating bit for for everyone involved with it. But it just goes to show you, like, when you're in that development hell, like, what it goes through to get from system to system, generation to generation. And and eventually, it's just, it's tough to say, well, let's pull the plug. Like, it's it's going nowhere. It's probably best that we do. Well, and you know that the expectations will be higher when those new consoles come out. So if you had developed it for the previous gens and there's new capabilities available and you try and release it as maybe a launch title, there's going to be high expectations for something like that. So it's it's hard to make those decisions. Are we going to release a lower quality game or are we going to just, you know, kind of start over? Exactly. So in 2002, going back a few years, Blizzard was able to reacquire rights for three of its earlier Silicon and Synapse titles, The Lost Vikings, Rock and Roll Racing, and Blackthorn from Interplay Entertainment and re-release them for Game Boy Advance. Blizzard Entertainment release. Now, some of you may have heard of this game. It's a small indie title. The MMORPG World of Warcraft, based on their Warcraft franchise on November 23rd, 2004 in North America, and on February 11th, 2005 in Europe. What is World you, of Warcraft, Alex? Um, it's this familiar. small little thing that's like if you took D&D and just, you know, put it online and did some stuff with it. It's, it's, it's kind of like an idea on that. It some sounds like may, a game that people would get so obsessed with that they might play it like multiple days at a time without sleep, right? They might do it. It might earn some money, some might say. Because yeah. by December 2004... The game was the fastest selling PC game in the United States, and by March of 05, had reached 1.5 million subscribers worldwide. Blizzard partnered with Chinese publisher The Nine to publish and distribute World of Warcraft in China, as foreign companies could not directly publish into the country themselves. World of Warcraft launched in China in June of 05, and by the end of 2007, World of Warcraft was considered a global phenomena, having reached over 9 million subscribers and exceeded 1 billion in revenue since its release. Is it really a full success until it's on South Park, though? It's true. You have to hit South Park fame so that the masses know what it is. It's obviously an underground thing until the masses of South Park watchers can understand it. Right. (laughs) In April of 08, World of Warcraft was estimated to hold 62% of the MMORPG subscription market. Blizzard's staff quadrupled from around 400 employees in 2004 to 1,600 by 2006 to provide more resources to the game and its various expansions, and Blizzard moved their headquarters to 16215 Alton Parkway in Irvine, California in 07 to support the additional staff. With the success of World of Warcraft, thanks to South Park, of course, of course. Trey and Matt. Blizzard <laughs> Entertainment organized the first BlizzCon fan convention in October 2005, held at the Anaheim Convention Center. The inaugural event drew about 6,000 people and became an annual event which Blizzard uses to announce new games, expansions, and content for its properties. 
Up through 2006, Bobby Kotick, the CEO of Activision, had been working to rebound the company from near bankruptcy and had established a number of new studios. However, Activision lacked anything in the MMO market. Kotick saw that World of Warcraft was bringing in over $1.1 billion a year in subscription fees and began approaching Vivendi's CEO, Jean Bernard Levy, about potential acquisition of their struggling Vivendi Games division, which included Blizzard Entertainment. Levy was open to a merger, but would only allow it if he controlled the majority of the combined company, knowing the value of World of Warcraft to Kodak. Among those Kodak spoke to for advice included Blizzard's Morhaim, who told Kodak that they had begun establishing lucrative inroads into the Chinese market. Kodak accepted Levy's deal, with the deal approved by shareholders in December 2007, and by July 2008, the merger was complete with Vivendi Games effectively dissolved except for Blizzard Entertainment, and the new company was named Activision Blizzard. Blizzard established a distribution agreement with the Chinese company NetEase in August 2008 to publish Blizzard's games in China. The deal focused on StarCraft II, which was gaining popularity as an eSport within Southeast Asia, as well as for other Blizzard games with the exception of World of Warcraft still being handled by the Nine. The two companies established the Shanghai EaseNet network technology for managing the games within China. Blizzard and the Nine prepared to launch the World of Warcraft expansion Wrath of the Lich King, but the expansion came under scrutiny by China's Content Regulation Board, the General Administration of Press and Publication, which rejected publication of it within China in March 2009, even with the preliminary modifications made by the Nine to clear it. Rumors of Blizzard's dissatisfaction with the Nine from this and other previous complications with World of Warcraft came to a head when, in April 2009, Blizzard announced it was terminating its contract with the Nine and transferred operation of World of Warcraft in China to NetEase. So yeah, I mean, it's it's doesn't pertain to a lot of you out there that are listening, but it's just interesting to see like what it takes to, especially in, in China get something published and have this workaround to have like a middleman company have to do it and they have to go through the regulations based on this and just kind of what a headache it is, but to tap into a huge market. So following the merger, Blizzard found it was relying on its well-established properties, but at the same time, the industry was experiencing a shift towards indie games. Blizzard established a few small teams within the company to work on developing new concepts based on the indie development approach that it could potentially use. One of these teams quickly came upon the idea of a collectible card game based on the Warcraft narrative universe, which ultimately became Hearthstone, released as a free-to-play title in March 2014. Hearthstone reached over 25 million players by the end of 2014 and exceeded 100 million players by 2018. Another small internal team began work around 08, on a new intellectual property known as Titan, a more contemporary or near-future MMORPG that would have coexisted alongside World of Warcraft. The project gained more visibility in 2010 as a result of some information leaks. Blizzard continued to speak on Titan's development over the next few years, with over 100 people within Blizzard working on the project. However, Titan's development was troubled, and, internally, in May 2013, Blizzard canceled the project while publicly reporting it in 2014 and reassigned most of the staff, but left about 40 or so people, led by Jeff Kaplan, 
to either come up with a fresh idea within a few weeks or be Shrekified in Blizzard's other departments. <laughs> the small team came upon the idea of a team-based multiplayer shooter game, reusing many of the assets from Titan, but set in a new near-future narrative. The new project was greenlit by Blizzard and became known as Overwatch, which was released in May 2016. Overwatch became the fourth main intellectual property of Blizzard, following Warcraft, Starcraft, and Diablo. So, some no-name games there. I mean, really, like, the only thing that Activision had done, you know, that mattered to anyone, I think at that point, was Tony Hawk's Underground Pro Skater. Must oh, of have course. been. Yeah. Of course. The, the all-time classic. All these other Activision <laughs> Blizzard titles. Yeah. Take them or leave them. But it is amazing to see how a studio like this, again, acquired so many different times under so many different companies and really seeing the corporate structure of how this thing goes. Because typically we just see them as like before Jeff Kaplan had left Overwatch, you know, he was the face of it for years. That's how we got it. That's who we saw. But not seeing the internals of like, hey, Jeff, how's it going? Anyway, you've got, you know, a couple weeks to come up with a game or else like you're just going to be making sure these assets work on this other game that we're doing, like, best of luck. And it's just crazy to see, like, when, especially like in the, when they call it indie game dev stuff, but allowing small teams to just come up with an idea and see if it works. Thus far, the two that they really had worked really well. I mean, and, and obviously all in jest. Uh, Activision is responsible for so many, like, game-changing franchises, the most probably notable outside of the ones that we've already talked about is like call of duty guitar mm -hmm. hero things like that where they've just had they not been able to stick around and pull through i think that gaming would look very different it really would and so again activision and blizzard have all their own ordeals that people have dealt with whether it is um of a personal vendetta or if it is any of the issues they've been going through now, especially with intellectual harassment, or just like not wanting to work with them. It's still amazing what's come out with it. And so we'll talk about less on the Activision side and much more on the Blizzard side during this episode and how Blizzard, Jeff Kaplan, and his team were able to really make Overwatch. Absolutely. So development of Overwatch followed after the cancellation of the ambitious, massively multiplayer online role-playing game Titan a game that had been in development at Blizzard for seven years since around 2007. Overwatch director Jeff Kaplan said that Titan was a class-based shooter game with each class having a core set of abilities that the player would expand upon via a skill tree progression. And these skills got more powerful the farther that the player progressed. Kaplan said that it ended up being very cluttered and confused. Blizzard co-founder Michael Moram stated that with Titan, we didn't find the fun. We didn't find the passion. Even after re-evaluating the project, the large Titan team of 140 members was broken up. 80 were permanently relocated to other divisions in Blizzard, 20 put on loan to other Blizzard projects, and the remaining 40 tasked to come up with a new project within six weeks. Otherwise, they would be assigned to other groups within Blizzard. Among ideas tossed around at this time was Crossroads, an MMO set in an outpost in space that would have been a crossroads for many different alien species. This game would have featured several different character classes, upwards of 50, which Kaplan thought would be difficult but remained a core concept of Crossroads. 
They also considered developing a tie-in to the StarCraft universe focused around individual characters within that universe. Creative director Chris Metzen noted that to avoid the same failure that Titan became, their group had to rethink how Blizzard's more successful games had come about, ignoring the scale and business opportunity of the end result and instead understand what tools and skills they had already to build from. In brainstorming ideas, the team thought about the current state of first-person shooters, a genre that many on the team had played throughout their careers, which had enjoyed many groundbreaking titles, but still has a potential for innovation, according to Kaplan. He stated that some of the ideas in the current FPS that they wanted to emulate were the use of in-game maneuvers like rocket jumping and grappling hooks that helped players move with fluidity across maps and team-based shooters such as Team Fortress Classic and Team Fortress 2. At the same time, Multiplayer online battle arena or MOBA games were starting to take off, which required players to cooperate with others to successfully win the match. Kaplan said that their team considered how to adapt the large scale and fast paced gameplay of Team Fortress 2 with the smaller scale and cooperative nature of MOBAs, forming the basis of Overwatch. Metzen also commented that the concept of teamwork in Overwatch was partially influenced by their own team's current morale following the cancellation of Titan. Metzen said that during Titan's development, the team was highly fractured, which impacted the project's cancellation. On starting Overwatch with a small group, they all wanted to come together and support each other to make their next game a success, a redemption story for them as people and as craftsmen. Morheim described Overwatch's intention as to create an awesome first-person shooter experience that's more accessible to a much wider audience while delivering the action and depth that shooter fans love. On the FPS nature of the game, Kaplan commented that the real focus of the shooting in the game is not to chase realism. We don't want real-world guns in the game. You're not playing a soldier in a present-day military conflict. Simplicity of design was a high-value goal, taking cues from the success of the simple approach used in Blizzard's Hearthstone. From a narrative and artistic standpoint, Overwatch's approach came out of the emotional impact of the failed Titan development. Kaplan said his small team was very nervous about our future when tasked to come up with a new game concept, but this soon solidified into the idea of a future worth fighting for, which had also been a phrase used internally for Titan's development. This gave them the idea to set the game in a near future and started evaluating other games set in the same period including recent Call of Duty and Battlefield games, as well as The Last of Us and Fallout 4, but found all these titles presented a dark version of the future. Further, they were aware that of the various expansions for World of Warcraft, the Burning Crusade had some of the least visited areas, which they attributed to the oppressive visuals. Instead of these darker futures, they wanted to present a narrative and world that was more optimistic with brighter visuals that would help draw in players. And it really did. I, I mean, going from like 2000 to 2010, which was the era of browns and grays in every single game. Just everything was <laughs> dark and gritty and, you know, like bloody and yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why a lot of like Borderlands stood out being this weird cell shaded game with pops of color and crazy wacky characters being this first-person shooter that was still really good in, in like the actual gameplay and gunplay of it, 
it had such a different feel and environment versus this just like murky sad time. Yeah. No, definitely because you you're they're a hundred percent right. When you go into like the Call of Duty games at that time, it's all like dark and everything's broken. But then you go into these Overwatch maps and it's bright and like the cities exist well and you know the sky is lit and it's daytime. It's not all smoky and depressing and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So it definitely provided a good different environment. Initial development of the game began with creating the first hero character, Tracer, who was based on a character from Titan with similar time manipulation abilities. They used Tracer in a single map based on the Temple of Anubis to test how well the core mechanics played, according to assistant game director Aaron Keller. They added three more heroes, Widowmaker, Reaper, and Pharah, all of whom had been developed from Crossroads classes, to start polishing the gameplay mechanics which even at this stage, Keller stated, compared very closely with what the release game would present. They had even considered releasing Overwatch with a limited set of heroes at this point, as they felt the game had already a finished feel to it. Instead, they spent about two years on developing the rest of the characters, gameplay balance, and graphics. Characters were generally added to the game for one of three reasons. One, to introduce a new gameplay mechanic or balance some gameplay, two, to incorporate a new character design created by their artistic team, or three, to help support Overwatch's narrative. Some characters were adaptations from the Titan classes. Reinhardt has started as the Juggernaut class from Titan, for example. In addition to character balance, the development team needed to find ways to balance the characters with the various maps wanting to provide areas across the maps for each character to have an area where they could be effective. The number of characters in the game was not fixed, though released with 21 different heroes. Kaplan stated the team played around with various goals, potentially as high as 40 unique heroes and across six different classes. Kaplan knew they had to have more than nine heroes to separate themselves from Team Fortress 2, which featured nine distinct classes. He credited Jeff Goodman, a veteran designer in Blizzard, for figuring out the right number of heroes, classes, and balance between the characters. Keller noted that as the cast approached 15 characters, the team started to worry that there were just too many for players to learn and may dilute the experience, but they strive to assure both uniqueness and balance across the slate of heroes. The team felt the game was ready for release in November 2015 after adding the last two characters, May and Diva, to the roster. Overwatch was developed with half a dozen features to bring in a wider audience, including an accessibility feature for colorblind people. During development, one important goal was to have combat clarity for the player, so that when a player moved into a new area, enemy characters would be clearly visible. This was enabled by contrasting the hues and saturation levels used for players to those used within the maps and creating characters with distinctly different silhouettes to allow a player to identify the hero from a distance, whether or not they were a friend or foe. They found during development that having players be able to change heroes in mid-match was important to gameplay, and this inspired them to forego plans to release Overwatch as a free-to-play model with microtransactions or with paid DLC, but instead make it a single-purchase title. Keller said that they wanted players to be able to jump to any hero 
as necessary by the situation, and the free-to-play or downloadable content approach could limit that ability if none of the team's players had purchased access to that hero. Keller also stated that the free-to-play downloadable content model could fragment their player community with gamers only playing with friends that had the same content instead of all available players. The game's engine was developed from scratch within Blizzard to target a wide range of personal computers, including laptops that use integrated graphics processors. Senior software engineer Ryan Green said that they looked to create a hardware min-spec that would assure the game ran at nearly 30 frames per second on these lower-end machines, which once met would allow higher-end machines as well as the consoles to run at 60 frames per second as well as optimizing other performance-related issues. A further goal in development was to avoid the negativity that often occurs in other competitive game environments and, along with strides to make the narrative give a positive message, made specific choices in gameplay design to remove elements they felt fed negativity. One such choice was omitting kill-death ratios from the various statistical summaries. As according to Kaplan, some characters don't need to kill to be effective. To promote a friendlier playing environment, Blizzard penalizes players that rage quit with a penalty on player experience points after a match and will permanently ban players that they find cheating or using hacks, bots, or third-party software. While the game's primary gameplay modes were easily developed to account for unique abilities of all characters, the developers also had thought about a capture the flag mode for several years recognizing that most team-based first-person shooters included some type of variant on this mode. The largest issue that this mode faced was the speed or warping abilities of some of the characters, like Tracer, who could pick up the flag and warp back to their base, leaving the other team unable to stop them. Thus, they would either find matches, reduced to players selecting the speediest characters, or having to put so many restrictions in place, the resulting game no longer felt like Overwatch. Over several iterations, they devised a scheme that they put to public testing in January 2017 through the Capture the Rooster special event to celebrate the Chinese New Year. To prevent speedy characters from running immediately after collecting the flag, they must wait a few seconds before they can run or use their special powers, leaving them vulnerable for that period. Initially having no plans to retain the Capture the Flag mode after the event, Blizzard announced that they will keep the event as a custom game mode with additional options. So it's a good compromise, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you, people like to play the capture the flag game modes, but there's a lot of FPS games that have issues and glitches and capture the flag type type modes because they're just, they're meant to be more combatant games that yes. have added these additional elements. And so it's hard to balance from time to time. It is, and especially when you have a hero-based game like this versus Halo or Call of Duty, that you may have an ability that boosts you a little bit, but not one that like allows you to like warp or teleport or fly, per se, without the use of a vehicle or something along those lines. And so I can see where that comes in, where it's like every team has a tracer. Every team has a speedy character or a Lucio or something that speeds people up. And it, it does work pretty well. I've played it a couple times. It works for what it is. Yeah. Blizzard's initial idea for competitive mode was to limit play to six-on-six -six matches, where players had formed their own teams outside of normal matchmaking 
with rankings based on team rather than individual performance. Kaplan stated that this would avoid issues relating to matchmaking and players dropping out mid-game in terms of tracking the team's rating. When they presented this concept to players early on, they received a large amount of negative feedback, with many players wanting to be able to play competitively solo rather than grouped with a team. From this feedback, they redesigned competitive mode to be based on a progression system, similar to Hearthstone, where initially a player would generally progress along a five-tier ladder system the more matches they played, but as they moved into higher ranks would find further progression to be based more on their skill. This approach had been tested in the beta period, but Blizzard found that low-ranked players were pitted frequently against much more highly-ranked players and that they had not accounted for players to fall out of a tier if they started to perform poorly. They further found players wanting a finer resolution of their competitive ranking to be able to better compare to other players. And they opted to hold back on including competitive mode at release and later redeveloped the mode to use the 100-point ranking system to meet these issues while continuing to look for other ways to improve the ranking system. And an improved competitive mode entered open beta testing within Battle.net's public test region on June 21st, 2016. Competitive mode for Windows, Xbox One, and PS4 was added on June 28th, June 30th, and July 1st, 2016, respectively. So again, this episode, sponsored by very dense space, I guess that's what dense is. Anyway, a a lot to compile here. a lot to put in here, but I really wanted to dissect like what it takes to do this and, and what they took to like look at competitive mode. Because a lot of us just see like, are we going to play like open pub or are we going to play some comp? And to see like what it actually takes to figure out like what's a good scale system to use? How do we make sure that that scale is actually players level and not just that they play 100 matches so they're here versus like how what quality they're doing? Well, and there's so many different aspects to look at because certain character builds are going to have other advantages. So not only are you having to deal with, is this player better than another player at a character at the same level? But you also have to consider that a certain player might be really amazing with one character and really bad with another. And they might be getting an advantage because of the character type and all kinds of different things that when you add in these different elements of characterization, you have to be considerate about what they do to your competitive gameplay so that people aren't getting unfair advantages. And this, and a very much like League of Legends, it's hard to quantify, if we're talking just kills and damage, how your healers do. I mean, it's, it shouldn't be based, and that's why they removed it. Or like, like if you're Reinhardt and you're a tank with a shield, you're not necessarily there to hit some damage. Like you are when you're, you know, in a scrum, but your goal is to protect the people who do the damage. So it's really hard to narrow that because then all your tanks and healers are going to be way down here in the competitive ladder if it's just based on kills. Right. They could be the best healer in the entire game, but because so many of the FPS shooter, like competitive levels are just based on that KD ratio, like they Mm -hmm. were trying to avoid. It really is hard to quantify those characters. And not only that, you have to consider the opportunities that you get for healing because if your teammates are not giving you the opportunity to heal them or maybe they're good, they don't need you 
quite as much as as other teammates might. There's sure. just so many other factors to consider with gameplay like that. So, yeah. And one of the things that I know that they wanted to expand on that took some time was getting kind of the narrative or just the idea of where you're even playing. It's so hard for a game like this where there's no story mode. There's no mode to tell you, hey, you're doing this. You're a good guy. You're a bad guy. It's just context clues and various other pieces of marketing. Kaplan stated that they wanted to create a future that was not typical of what a post-apocalyptic world might be like, opting instead for a future where conflict still exists, but a bright and aspirational vision is maintained. The title's creative director, Chris Menson, acknowledged that parts of Overwatch, such as maps, share continuity with Titan, citing a desire to keep its game styles simple and because it contradicted its emphasis on accomplishing goals as a team rather than trying to achieve large numbers of kills, Overwatch does not contain a traditional deathmatch mode. Metzen stated that we have a long legacy of developing multiplayer games, and it came down to, is it even possible to build a shooter that doesn't feel cynical, that doesn't feel cruel, that doesn't feel nasty? Can you build one that really promotes teamwork and relationship and having fun with your friends and not getting killed with a thrown knife from halfway across a map as soon as you jump in? Hint, hint, Call of Duty. <laughs> and it is. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, can you make it to where it's not just like a rage-inducing thing to get on the highest kill board? Can you make it so you and your friends and you and your teammates build this bond to push a cart or capture a point? And also make it so that new players aren't so frustrated, especially if you want to continue growing your player base. Because like in games like Call of Duty, if you haven't played it since launch, you're at a pretty big disadvantage sometimes, not being able to unlock particular weapons, not fully mm -hmm. understanding the points in the map that are key. You have to really work hard to catch up to that player base. But when you set your competitive balance in a way to where new players and players that aren't the greatest killers in the world um, mm -hmm. are, are able to join and, and play effectively, you just open up your player base so much more. Yeah, and, and, and you need to do it if you're trying to bring people into this whole new IP for it. Kaplan has expressed that this theme continued into the aesthetics of the game, commenting, quote, when it comes to the setting and art style and tone of the universe, a lot of games like to approach the future in either a very dystopian way or a post-apocalyptic way. And later added, we wanted to make something bright and welcoming that featured a lot of deep, rich colors. A lot of the modern realistic games tend to focus on gritty, gray, brown palettes. Several of the initial maps, Ilios, Dorado, and Nepal, were developed based on the idea of vacation spots and drawn from various imagery from those locations. Kaplan noted that Dorado, set in Mexico, was inspired by a photograph they found while searching for images of colorful Mexican towns, but only later realized that the photo was that of Manarola, Italy. Others, like the Hollywood map, were created by a multicultural team that used only their perception of what Hollywood was like rather than any reference material, with the result being better than a realistic version, according to Kaplan. A more recent map, Oasis, set in Iraq, was portrayed as one of the most technologically advanced places in the world, 
To contrast how other games set in the near future present the country as ravaged by war. The narrative for Overwatch is led by Blizzard's senior game designer, Michael Chu. Creating a narrative for the game was a challenge compared to past Blizzard titles, as the game lacks a single-player mode or any traditional storytelling whatsoever. Instead, the story crafters for the game sought to create a spanning narrative that could be interjected into the game through short in-game dialogue and unlockable hero skins. A March 2017 patch for the game added short character biographies, as well as lore details about specific character skins in the hero gallery. Outside of the game, the narrative is primarily driven by a transmedia storytelling method, which includes animated shorts and digitally released comics. This gives the developers some flexibility as to where they can take the story of Overwatch as it is expanded over the years. The narrative can still be seen being hinted at through map environments and character dialogue within the game itself. Chu explains that, quote, you get a character like Soldier 76, and he says, like, back in my day, we'd have this payload delivered. And then you get a character like Zenyatta, the robot monk, and he would say something like, becoming one with the objective. So we find these ways to really differentiate them, and it makes for unexpected and sometimes ridiculous lines. Blizzard also found ways to include narrative elements through limited timed events, such as the Junkenstein's Revenge event during October 2016 and the April 2017 Uprising event. Chu said that with these types of events, they will encourage players to explore the other forms of media that Blizzard is using to develop the Overwatch narrative as well as promote fans to continue to explore and speculate on the world and characters they created. Blizzard felt they had strength in developing a narrative for a large universe of characters as they had done for Warcraft. Chu expressed that they wanted to diverge from the fantasy and science fiction elements that were prominent in their main three franchises, Warcraft, Starcraft, and Diablo, stating, We wanted to try something different with Overwatch, so what we decided to go for was the future of Earth. We always wanted the game to be about heroes, so we took a lot of inspiration from comics and superhero stories of our youth and today. Once it was determined Overwatch would be played on a near-futuristic version of Earth, the writers recognized the possibility of having a global-spanning set of characters and locations set in an inspirational future. Metzen sees the Overwatch universe as having potential dynamics over time, but Blizzard does not yet have plans for how to implement this within the game. Now, again, the, the biggest thing we've talked about is these characters or heroes that they do. So I want to dive into what it took. We know about Tracer, a little bit about Reinhardt, but what are they trying to do that's a little different? So the cast of playable characters in Overwatch was selected to portray diverse representations of genders and ethnicities including humans and non-human characters such as robots and a gorilla. The need for a diverse cast was important to the developers, as some of Blizzard's previous games have been criticized for missing the mark. Metzen explained that even his daughter had asked him why all the female characters from Warcraft seemed to be only wearing swimsuits. Metzen stated, quote, Specifically for Overwatch, over the past year, we've been really cognizant of that, trying not to over-sexualize the female characters. Kaplan explained that the industry was clearly in an age where gaming is for everybody, going on to say that increasingly, people want to feel represented from all walks of life, boys, girls, everybody. We feel indebted to do our best to honor that. Chu expressed that the diverse group of characters is a result of Blizzard's approach to game design. 
elaborating that we've tried to have a diverse cast of characters and diverse locations that you can go to. And hopefully these characters, even beyond national diversity, just seeing their personalities and their backstories, their occupations, hopefully people will find things in common with these characters. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Overwatch's diversity also extends to other character facets. Blizzard has said that some of the characters have LGBT identities. Metzen said that the inclusion of LGBT characters was not to be a data point or feel contrived in any way, but instead to have these identities play out organically. Tracer was the first identified as one of the LGBT characters via one of the promotional online comics. Blizzard said on this reveal, as with any aspect of our characters' backgrounds, their sexuality is just one part of what makes our heroes who they are. From the very beginning of our work on Tracer's story, it just felt right to make this an aspect of her character. Blizzard reiterated their goal to have a diverse cast with Tracer's reveal, stating from the beginning we've wanted the universe of Overwatch to feel welcoming and inclusive and to reflect the diversity of our players around the world. Additional lore released in January 2019 revealed that Soldier 76 had been in a same-sex relationship earlier in this life, making him the second LGBT character on the roster. Similarly, the character of Symmetra is considered autistic by the development team, with Kaplan saying, We think she does a great job of representing just how awesome someone with autism can be. The team envisioned the characters akin to superheroes in this narrative each with their own abilities, background, and personality that could stand on their own, but also fit into the larger story. This notion translated into the characters being agents for the game, which Metzen said still captures the heroism and vibe that superhero stories carry. The team did not want to have any characters that served solely as villains in the game, but did develop some of the characters, like Soldier 76, to have an unsure purpose within the narrative. Several characters evolved out of the characters and their abilities they had developed for Titan, including Tracer, Widowmaker, Bastion, Soldier 76, Symmetra, Torbjorn, and Reinhardt. Characters were designed to avoid outright character stereotypes. In some cases, such as Cassidy, or as we knew him, McCree, they took a stereotypical character, but created a story and approach to embrace the stereotype. Other cases were presenting a character one would never typically see in a modern game, such as Anna, an older woman who remains a skilled sniper. The choice of Tracer as the cover art was purposefully to contrast Overwatch from most other shooter games that featured a grizzled-looking older male soldier, with Kaplan saying that this was to show that 
Normal things are normal. Kaplan credits artist Arnold Sang for coming up with the preliminary designs for all the heroes in the game. The narrative and characters themselves were then developed through an iterative process between the gameplay developers, artists, and promotional media as they worked to bring the narrative together. In this regard, Torbjorn was the defining character for the game, as while he was not created first, his art style was originally created by Sang to help bridge the gap between the Warcraft universe to Overwatch. Blizzard's art director, Sam Didier, reviewed Sang's original design, prompting several questions to help tighten the art design that led to Torbjorn's gameplay mechanics, and subsequently, Torbjorn's appearance was used as a baseline in all other character and map designs to make sure that these assets would appear to fit into the same universe. Another example is Doomfist, a character introduced into one of the game's promotional videos where his gauntlet is on display. This led to the creation of one of the maps that expanded upon the Doomfist concept, making that a title passed down among others in the past, and seeding some of the existing heroes' backstory that have connections to the Doomfist title. This process gave them a sufficient starting point to work from in introducing Doomfist as a playable hero in Overwatch, and other examples of similar iterative expansion to the characters given by Metzen and Chu include the heroes Genji and Hanzo, who were characters born out of an initial single character and leading to them being rivals of each other. The introduction of Lucio as a means to expand upon the loosely connected Vishkar Corporation concept that was part of Symmetra's backstory. Yeah, so it's, again, they, they started off with these simple characters and then build upon it, build these moments that start to flesh out more of what it is and what are these, like, shadow corps between, like, Genji and Hanzo, why are these, what we learn, our brothers, why are they warring, why are they against each other? Like, why is it, the you know, why is the world the way it is? Uh, it's kind of cool. I, I think it's a lot of... Modern companies are doing that, like Apex Legends, which built off the Titanfall series and is building this backstory as they slowly release characters and slowly flesh the world out. I think it's an interesting narrative point to make, especially when you're like, we don't want to like sandbox ourselves into like, this is what it is. This is all it is. Like you at least have like, we know these points. It's almost very much like a D&D adventure or a Dungeons and Dragons adventure. You know, the overall scope of what can happen but as more stuff comes out and more characters introduced, the world shapes itself without needing like a box to be secured in. Now, Blizzard did uh, huge stuff because this, again, I think we're in the age of 10-year games. This is a 10-year product. And so Blizzard had a lot of post-release development and support that it added to it. Blizzard pledged to support the game through various updates. Nearly all such updates are made available for testing on a special region called the Public Test Region, or the PTR, which any player can select instead of their local geographic region. In February of 2020, Blizzard planned to add an experimental card to the game that will test elements that are not related to debugging, but to testing game balance, such as tweaking gameplay rules or characters' abilities. Players will be able to access the experimental card from any region, and kind of do the same thing they've been doing with the other PTR stuff. Some updates include features promised as part of the long-term release plan, such as the competitive mode and potential ch changes to how the play of the game is selected, which is like, at the end, it's the MVP. So that they show an MVP play from the game, and when it's released, it was just who got the most kills. It was like, oh, you got like a triple kill, versus 
I revived two teammates and then healed everybody and made sure we didn't lose the point. So they did a lot of this stuff. Another thing that they worked on was tweaking characters as the game went. So, for example, rearranging Hanzo, changing some of his abilities up that were seen as like too overpowered and tweaking them to still be similar, but not being a game breaking option or Symmetra, whose ultimate previously was just a teleporter from home base to wherever is now just from a point she is to a point she can see with her ultimate being uh, this barrier that helps. It's plenty of stuff that goes into that, but they did a lot of that post-launch to make it a more interesting and balanced game, which I, as a player of way too many hours, really appreciate and find it just refreshing. Well, and you have to do it when you're trying to make a competitively balanced game that's also introducing new content. Because you want to make things interesting, but it's hard, I think to really gauge how powerful a character, a new character, and a new ability is going to be until it's out there. But all you can do is say, hey, we recognize where this is a problem, and you fix it. Well, and they even talked about, too, like, they're so glad Farah came out early because, like, it's a flying character. As we continue to develop new maps, I'm so glad we have almost our infinite flying character out now instead of later where we didn't realize you can stand on this roof and just fire down on people versus like having either like a, you know, a, a slippery roof or like not be able to stay up there and balancing it evenly. And a few things to add kind of this post launch was obviously having the PTR characters. So be able to play the characters early in that uh, public test realm and then allowing the devs to tweak it as it comes out. A couple of things that actually came out of that as well. Post launch was various arcade modes, which was very, very good because players, like we had talked about, capture the flag are like, hey, I don't want that to just be an event. Can it be something else? And so what they did post-launch was have rotating things every week or every day for certain things and then keeping some things staples. And then the last two things post-launch that I think everyone really appreciated, one, is custom games, not just in the way of like playing with friends, like a quick play to put together, but you could change the rules. There were things of like Frogger put into the game, Flappy Bird, like through these random ways to do it was insane. It was just so cool to see that added to the game. And then lastly, it was one of the things done first was originally there was no restriction on how many of certain characters you could have on your team. So if you wanted six soldier 76s, as I tongue tie myself, <laughs> you could have that and just be like a ridiculous powerhouse. Sure. So they, end, so they ended up restricting it to one character per team and then actually having a mayhem mode is what they call it, where you could be six characters of whatever if you wanted to play that down the road. So Sure, and, and you can um, change as the game's going, right? Like, so... So yes. you hold down, um, I think on PlayStation, it's like square to switch, swap the characters in that mode. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You can, you can swap characters and kind of the, any, as long as you're like dead, you can swap between your characters unless it's fully locked in. Or if you're roll queued, which is another thing they added that you're stuck in assault, defense or healing, and then tank, you can kind of pick between those. So there's various modes that have that, that have really 
and, and a lot of games have this post-launch of the tweaks of game modes, like how to add in stuff. Again, I bring up Apex because that's most of what I play is currently they are doing a capture the point thing where they've typically never had anything like this in the game that people are having a lot of fun with. So games progress and experiment while still keeping that core gameplay going. So it's, it's really cool to see what they've done post-launch. Absolutely. And you have to introduce new game modes just to keep the content fresh. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the player base lets you know, you just look in the lobby and say, okay, well, there's enough people playing this mode over a course of a a certain length of time to where you can find out like, that's a successful thing in Halo. It was like, we're going to introduce SWAT and Griffball and things like that that are just a little offbeat and a little bit different and see if they still work within the core game mechanics. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. So Yeah. So it's all about that experimentation process and and figuring out what works for you. And, And like you said, see those numbers, see who's actually playing it, see feedback on socials, on your actual forums, and then go from that. And that's how you know... Again, unfortunately, we're going to talk about Overwatch 2, but unfortunately with that, like, ugh, having their eyes set to that, Overwatch has suffered a lot because of it. But prior to that, there was just so much stuff that they were adding, which is really, really awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the marketing. Overwatch was formally announced at the BlizzCon event on November 7, 2014, and the game was playable during the event to all attendees with 14 characters available to select. During the event, Blizzard released a cinematic trailer and an extended gameplay video for the game. And a month afterwards, in December 2014, Blizzard published character introduction videos to its YouTube channel and followed up on this in May of the next year by posting weekly videos of game footage and character highlights. A closed beta period for Overwatch across all three platforms began on October 27th of 2015, And the closed beta was put on an extended break in December, later brought back in February of the next year. Following in the next month, there was a release announcement, and Blizzard announced an open beta period from May 5th to 9th for any registered players of the Battle.net client. The open beta proved popular with Blizzard reporting over 9.7 million players participating, and as a way of showing thanks, extended the open beta period by an extra day. Listen, it, you know, we got 10 million people on here. How do we show thanks? Guess what, guys? One more day. One more day. <laughs> One more day. <laughs> it's like being at a concert and everyone's yelling encore and... Like, All right, okay. guys, you get one more. Keep playing. You Keep have to imagine that they had that scheduled in, just like those bands always do. Because oh, if yeah. they're going to play the encore, they're going to they're gonna do it. Oh, absolutely. So in the week prior to release, Blizzard arranged to have three giant-sized boxes, about 15 feet tall, of various Overwatch heroes, as if they were being sold as packaged action figures, put on display across the globe in Hollywood, Paris, and in Busan of South Korea, which is kind of cool. I love to see, like, big displays like that, like, whether it's, like, kind of this underground art thing or just, like, cool big displays that go along with games. I mean, and especially doing it in the action, you know, like action hero, I feel mm-hmm. like figures like that, they're, there's just an appeal to them if you grew up buying action figures at all. It's something that catches your eye, you pay attention to. 
And, and the packaging always gets you. Like when you get cool packaging to go yeah. along with it, you're like, oh, this is awesome. And as we had said, Overwatch was released for Windows, PS4, and Xbox One on May 24th, 2016, with game servers coming on live at midnight BST that day. Blizzard allowed retailers to sell physical copies of the game on May 23rd to help players prepare for the server's launch. The game will be supported by updates, including new maps and characters, as we've seen and slowly seen the decline up. All of the additional content is free for existing players and requires no payments. And Blizzard hoped that this would alleviate, as we had said, that kind of like, oh, I only own Tracer, Widowmaker, and Genji. I can't play a tank. I don't have that. So allowing that to keep building up made it just appealing for everybody. Because that's one of the things with League, right? Where mm -hmm. you have to constantly be buying the new updates for the new characters to stay modern. Exactly. So. And, and uh, the only other options you have is like a free rotation where you might get a character that you want to play. Other than that, it's paying real world money or saving credits to get that character unlocked. Yeah, it's definitely a good decision, I think. Mm -hmm. Two special editions of Overwatch were released alongside the base game. The Origins Edition, available both as a downloadable and retail product, included the base game and five additional character skins, as well as other bonus items for other Blizzard games via Battle.net. And then there was the Collector's Edition, only available as retail, which included the Origins Edition, as well as a statue of Soldier 76, one of the playable characters, along with the game soundtrack and a source book. Those that purchased either the Origins or Collector's Editions received the baby Winston Battle Pet in the World of Warcraft. Blizzard released a digital Game of the Year edition of Overwatch in honor of its first anniversary on May 27, 2017, and that included all content from the Origins Edition in addition to 10 free loot boxes. Blizzard has expressed interest in supporting cross-platform play between console systems in the future, though has no plans for Windows-supported cross-play due to the precision advantage of keyboard and mouse controls over controller-based ones, which continues to be, I think, a point of controversy between the, the competitive markets. It's tough. Again, Apex. They have it, and there's tweaks that are constantly done on both mouse and keyboard and controller, whether it's a little bit of aim assist here or some drift. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that has to go into it, so I totally understand kind of staying and quote-unquote evening the play field. I was a little disappointed with this collector's edition. Uh, I believe it only offered the soundtrack in a CD format, mm -hmm. which I don't know. I mean, but this point of release... Get them, get them tiny discs out of here. Yeah. No, and yeah. No way. Gotta be vinyl, yeah. baby. Gotta be, gotta be vinyl. Gotta go back and then forward. You gotta Vinyl do or might as well, like, give me a download code at that point. Exactly. Just, just give me something rolling with that and we're good to go. So now I want to talk about more of the media and merchandise they built along with it. So Blizzard opted to tell the story of Overwatch across various mediums. And she had stated one of the things that's really great is we're able to leverage the strengths of these different mediums to tell different parts of the story. Citing Soldier 76's appearances in fake news reports, an animated video narrated from his perspective, as well as the hero short. Chu has also remarked that the reasoning for Blizzard's method of storytelling with Overwatch was an emphasis on gameplay-first philosophy. 
In March 2016, Blizzard announced that they would be releasing comics and animated shorts based on Overwatch. The related media included plans for a graphic novel called Overwatch First Strike, which would have focused on the story of several in-game characters including Soldier 76, Torbjorn, Reaper, and Reinhardt. The novel was to be penned by writer Mickey Nielsen and artist Ludo Lulabi. Blizzard opted to cancel First Strike in November 2016, with Chu stating that since the announcement of the graphic novel, Overwatch's narrative development had gone in a different direction, changing those origin stories and pretty much opting to make that comic make no sense. (laughs) So that comes down to, as I had said, like such an evolving landscape. It's tough to be like, okay, guys, we've got six months to do this comic. Oh, he was never part of that. Oh, they did this? Huh. And it makes it tough. Yeah. When they're going and and trying to establish lore for characters like this, I think there are unique challenges there because sometimes you start to, as new characters are introduced, you want to kind of retcon some of those things. If you go back and listen to like our League of Legends episode, we talk a little bit about how they hit the reset button on that character background story where they just kind of started everything over. So not totally foreign and probably doesn't change that much about the characters, to be honest. Yeah, as far as the character in game, no. But if you're like, I like a bit of lore and understanding that stuff, and when you have a full shift, like you said, with League, that's reset, I think, three times, then you have to figure out what's established, what's not, where are we? Blizzard began releasing the series of animated shorts in March 2016, and the shorts maintained the style of the game's cinematic trailer, which centered on a battle in which Tracer and Winston fought Reaper and Widowmaker in the Overwatch Museum. A collection of these cinematic sequences played in movie theaters across the U.S. as part of the game's launch event. The first episode of the animated short series, Recall, was released on March 23rd, and it centers on Winston and Reaper, and features flashbacks to Winston's childhood. The second episode, Alive, showcased a standoff between Tracer and Widowmaker and was released on April 5th. The third episode, Dragons, features the brothers Hanzo and Genji, Uh, was released on May 16th. And the fourth and final episode of the series' first season, Hero, stars Soldier 76 and was released six days later on May 22nd. Overwatch characters and elements have been brought over to the crossover MOBA game, Heroes of the Storm, and nine characters appear as playable heroes in that game, along with battlegrounds based on the Overwatch maps, Hanamura, and Volskaya Industries. Tracer debuted as a playable character in the video game Heroes of the Storm in its April 2016 update nearly a month prior to the release of Overwatch. Hanzo was added alongside Alex Straza as part of the Dragons of the Nexus event in December 2017, and a number of Overwatch-themed skins have been introduced for Heroes of the Storm in the, quote, Overwatch cosplay event. Blizzard and Dark Horse Comics announced a partnership at the 2016 San Diego Comic-Con International that will have Dark Horse publish the existing Overwatch comics to date under their label, as well as future comics, and will publish a 100-page art book, The Art of Overwatch, which was released in mid-2017. Funko has produced several Overwatch character figurines in their pop line since the game's launch. 
Good Smile Company announced they will produce Nendoroid figurines of various Overwatch characters in 2017 and onward, starting with Tracer and followed by Mercy in May. It's really cool. It's cool to see, like, especially if you're a fan of these products, to like have other things about them. I think it's just always fun. I just really enjoy. Listen, I was a Funko hater. I was a a, a Funkator for a while, but now I'm I'm on board. I like them. <laughs> so it's just cool to see how like some of your favorite characters, if you play as that character or you love stuff like that, can be seen in other mediums. I have one pop figure, and it's just Doctor Manhattan, who's my favorite comic book character. There you go. So there, there's so many of them, yeah. man. I wasn't shocked at all to to see Overwatch right on that train because it's oh, yeah. like the most random things. It feels like they're racing against the world to try and get <laughs> literally every single character, whether it be a real or fictional human being, into a pop figure. And also, don't forget the variants of like Puffy Shirt Jerry and Stand Up Comedian right. Jerry. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, uh, but it's there. Like it's gonna have like my next door neighbor. I'm gonna see him at the store or something. That that would be a U twos. I don't know if you I don't know if you're familiar with U twos. That is where you can basically have a character made of you, which various streamers and personalities of the such have something like that. So there's options for you. You could hey, that actually sounds fantastic. I wasn't aware of that. Get them out there. Kind of want that now. There you go. So we've we'll add those to the Patreon. Add them up there, baby. So we've talked a <laughs> bit about. The gameplay, I want to get into the nitty-gritty, the kind of just bullet points of it to give you guys. If you haven't played Overwatch or haven't played like Team Fortress 2, here's the ideas of these kind of arena point capture type games. The game features several different game modes, principally designed around squad-based combat with two opposing teams of six each. Players select one of many, many, many at this point pre-made heroes from one of three class types. Damage heroes or assault heroes. Uh, deal the most damage when they're attacking or defending. So they're basically somewhat squishy, but have a lot of output. Tank heroes absorb a lot of damage, and support heroes heal and buff and debuff enemies. Each hero has a unique skill kit with different abilities that can eventually build up to an ultimate that is either insanely devastating or insanely undevastating, the reverse of whichever that is, healing <laughs> whatever the reverse of devastation is i'll i'll talk to uh jesse and james of team rocket and they will let me know blast off <laughs> speed of light surrender now but the game features game modes for casual play that's right <laughs> also we're at this point of the episode ladies and germs uh where we're losing it anyway the, yeah a little bit <laughs> just a little bit the game features game modes for casual play competitive rank play and for supporting esports competitions including blizzard's overwatch league which we are getting to soon these modes generally are centered around sequentially securing control points on a map or escorting a payload between point a to point b or point b and c with one team attacking one team defending other modes set aside for casual matches include solo and team deathmatch which as we talked about, was not a thing they wanted. And eventually, as they added heroes to the roster and people wanted to start to compete a bit more, and they had the money. That's, they had the money. <laughs> they added it in. Capture the flag and unique modes run during various seasonal events. More recent updates have enabled users to craft their own game modes with those scripting tools. Like I said, Flappy Bird, but 
your Fara. New characters and maps have been added regularly to the game since launch, expanding the original hero roster from 21 to 32 as of April 2020. Again, that's really the last time the game's been touched. <laughs> Regardless of winning or losing a match, players gain experience towards a player level, and on gaining a new level, receive loot boxes that contain cosmetic items that they can use to customize the appearance of their characters, but doesn't affect gameplay whatsoever. Loot boxes, as we had stated, can also be purchased through microtransactions. So yeah, a good balanced gameplay with a lot of updates, a lot of different things that you can do. Let's get into the story a little bit, which is really more of like just a setting more than anything else. Exactly. Yeah. It's set 60 years into the future of a fictionalized Earth, 30 years after the resolution of what is known as the Omnic Crisis. Before the Omnic Crisis, humanity had been in a golden age of prosperity and technology development, and humans developed robots with AI called Omnics, which were put to use to achieve economic equality and began to be treated as people in their own right. I've seen iRobot. Mm-hmm. Scary. Mm-hmm. The Omnic Crisis began when the worldwide automated Omnium facilities that produced them started producing a series of lethal, hostile robots that attack humankind. Eventually, individual countries responded with various programs. For example, the U.S. developed its soldier enhancement program to produce elite fighters. I've seen Captain America. (laughs) And then for another example, while Germany was over there doing their own thing, they assembled nightlight crusaders, which... I'm sure there's someone somewhere out there that's tried to do that, too. I'm sure of it. I'm I'm (laughs) losing it. (laughs) When these efforts failed to ward off the Omnics, the United Nations quickly formed Overwatch, an international task force combining these individual programs to combat the threat and restore order. Two veteran soldiers from the Soldier Enhancement Program were put in charge of Overwatch, Gabriel Reyes and Jack Morrison. The Overwatch successfully quelled the robotic uprising and brought many talented individuals to the forefront. A rift developed between Reyes and Morrison, and Morrison was made the leader of Overwatch while Reyes was given charge of Blackwatch. Overwatch's covert operations division, fighting terrorist organizations like Talon, a group that appears to be trying to start a second Omnic crisis, and Null Sector, a group of Omnics that revolted against a society that persecuted Omnics following the first crisis. Overwatch continued to maintain peace across the world for several decades in what came to be called the Overwatch Generation, as the team gained more members, but the rift between Morrison and Reyes intensified. Several allegations of wrongdoing and failures were leveled at Overwatch, leading to a public outcry against the organization and infighting between its members, prompting the UN to investigate the situation. And during this, an explosion destroyed Overwatch's headquarters in Switzerland, purportedly killing Morrison and Reyes, among others. The UN passed the Petrus Act, which dismantled Overwatch and forbade any Overwatch-type activity. Overwatch is set six years after the Petrus Act, and without Overwatch, corporations have started to take over. Fighting and terrorism have broken out in parts of the globe, and there are signs of a second Omnic crisis occurring in Russia. The intelligent guerrilla Winston, a former member of Overwatch, decides to begin reforming it to protect the peace once again despite the Petrus Act, 
with the team members recruiting old friends and gaining new allies in their fight. It is revealed that Reyes and Morrison were not killed in the explosion resulting from their battle. Morrison became a masked vigilante known as Soldier 76, who is trying to uncover the reason why Overwatch was shut down, while Reyes joined Talon and became Reaper, a terrorist disguised as death. Talon's so, all this time. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting setting. It's, it's a cool way, again, a very D&D-esque way to start something off of like, here's the background, here's some history for your setting, okay, go forth. And just build it out as you want to keep playing. And, you know, do you want to have some Omnics? Do you want to be a human character that does this? Do you want someone who does that or has some association with a corp? It's, it's really cool to have an interesting start and to have why some people don't like Overwatch or why it's forbid or not that many members is because it was dismantled and now has to come together, even though the world basically doesn't want it. So it's, 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 a, it's a start. We'll say that. It's, yeah, I don't think it's like the most crazy original story. It's, I think, familiar enough to, for players to be able to associate with it. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel that far out of the realm of possibility. And then it's open-ended enough to where you can sort of fill in the blanks for characters. And without there being a very particular storyline for all the characters in general, you know, there's certain characteristics. And of course we talked about the setting. I feel like that works just fine. It, it really does. And it starts it off in, in a, a really good light and a really good spot for a lot of people to just get a chunk of it and play yeah. again, gameplay first story second for this type of stuff. But if people want to know it, there's plenty out there to start to learn it. Definitely better than just leaving the entire thing alone and just being like, well, yeah, they're here, and I don't know why, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly. But let's get into why they have gameplay first. You know, we, we had talked a little bit about how StarCraft II kind of led this esports aspect of Blizzard into its own thing, it kind of ruled the RTS element of esports. And coming up to this time, I mean, you've got Halo in it, you've got Call of Duty, you've got all these other like bits and bobs trying to get into esports or establishing themselves even further with Overwatch jumping into the market. So just before the game's release, PC gamer writer Stefan Dorsenstein contacted professional esports players and hosts for their opinions. Longtime esports host Paul Schindler stated that Overwatch needs a much better spectator system. Going on to elaborate, Right now, it's incredibly difficult for commentators and viewers to see the skills of the players. Who used their ultimates, and how did they interact? Who is on cooldown, and who has changed hero? Fellow esports players Seb Barton and Michael Rosen criticized the game's map designs and game modes. Barton remarked that, quote, the game modes are a little hit and miss. Adding, King of the Hill is super exciting and fast-paced, but then you have the payload or escort-style maps which are just a snooze fest for everyone involved. Rosen expressed a need for tweaking to the maps used for the control game mode, as they are just too prone to the snowball effect. The moment the attacking team captures the first control point, they don't just have the momentum, but they also have the last advantage for the second and final capture points of getting their positioning, getting their ultimate start to build up, and snowballing to a win and you could really see from like the the esports perspective 
Um, not just game development, but also like a viewership development, whether it be Twitch, whether it be like promoting a game through viewership, you can really see where now you almost get like a free creative marketing Mm -hmm. from people like this that that really like i think influences games in a way that we've never seen before yeah and 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 this is really the start and it's it's big to ask players and commentators before they're even jumping like would you play this basically and they're like not as it is right the first organized prize-winning competitions for overwatch started in mid-2016 a few months after launch the esports organizer ESL held the first international Overwatch competition in August of that year called Overwatch Atlantic Showdown. The competition used four open qualifiers beginning in June, followed by regional qualifiers and then a final online qualifier, and eight teams then competed for a six-figure prize in the finals, which were held at Gamescom 2016 from August 20th to the 21st. Turner Broadcasting's E-League announced the first Overwatch Open tournament starting in July of 2016 with a total prize pool of $300,000 with plans to broadcast the finals on Turner's cable channel TBS in September 2016. In November of that year, Blizzard hosted their own Overwatch World Cup, allowing users to vote for teams to represent their nation or region with finals taking place during their BlizzCon event. Overwatch grew increasingly popular in South Korea since it was released, and it topped gaming cafes in Korea in terms of player count, surpassing that of League of Legends. The game influenced the creation of an esports tournament in the region under the brand Apex, which was shut down in January of 2018, replacing these and other regional tournaments with the structured Overwatch contenders, which serves as a minor league to the Overwatch League. To support viewership of its professional competitions, Blizzard released a companion Overwatch app in November of 2018 that gives viewers a means to watch matches through a spectator mode. So that spectator tool that we had talked about that wasn't originally there, that was just hard to have, they've built into like its own app that's within the game, allowing you to see those stats and features bounce around. And it really allowed you to get into the nitty-gritty, especially on these individual tournaments that certain companies or certain leagues hosted but where it really boils down to and gets into that nitty-gritty of what's going on is when we hit up the overwatch league the very specific league that blizzard has founded in collaboration with some big name people so in october 2016 bobby kotick first mentioned the overwatch league describing how viewership of user-generated esports content was around 100 million exceeding viewership for some professional NFL and NBA games, and saw the potential to provide professional content through the Overwatch League to tap into that viewership. Overwatch League was formally announced at BlizzCon 2016. The announcement stated that the league would feature franchise teams that would hire skilled Overwatch players to compete in live arenas and via video streaming. Teams would provide competitors with salaries and benefits, and would help cultivate team and player development. Rather than following the format of other esports that use relegation and promotion, as in the League of Legends Championship Series, Blizzard wanted to follow the American model, used in more traditional physical sports. Kodak believed that nothing like this has ever really been done before in esports. 
And you have to think about that as a concept, uh, like in the American sports, teams that exist, exist and join leagues and they get opened up. And then, you know, there are some teams that are just really perpetually bad. And Mm -hmm. so it's it's definitely a very intentional and maybe uh, not. I I don't know the best decision, in my opinion, just because. Like when teams get relegated in soccer, for instance, Mm -hmm. the idea is that you're always dealing with fresh competition, but then of course, like teams that don't have funding and and things like that never really get a fair shot to, to move up either. And maybe they get out of those tournaments. So, um, definitely an interesting decision in my opinion. And I will say just jumping forward, we definitely saw that in some of the first years of some teams just being like, oh, and 15. Like they got, they got steamrolled. Like their matches were the, the shortest of all. Everyone was like, why are you even a team? Yeah. Like we just know how it's going to happen. And like they would go, cause you'd have to play pretty much at a minimum, at least two matches. And they were like out of the matches of that main game, they would be like two and like 35. Yeah. Like they would somehow win one and never rally back again. Yeah, and like in um in soccer, for instance, it's more about like a city or a just a community that is kind of coming together. Even like obviously, it's great if you can get all the way up to like a Premier League or a Championship mm-hmm. League team or something like that. But you know, when there are these smaller communities, it's just kind of more about getting together. So you could see where in a sort of in a tournament environment where these people are being broadcast across the globe that it's just a little bit different, I guess, but it's all new. It's all fresh. So you just have to try things out and see what works. Exactly. For Blizzard, the cost of running the league would be offset by traditional revenue streams that professional sports leagues have, such as promotion and advertisement and physical league merchandise. Kodak also said that due to the digital nature of the esport, Blizzard can obtain revenue from virtual league-based items to fans and additional sales of Overwatch and other games, and they're also able to include more lucrative, over-the-top advertising opportunities that wouldn't exist in traditional sports. Kodak said just prior to the start of the inaugural season, it's a ways before you're going to see certain revenue streams, but we're already seeing a lot of traction and enthusiasm from fans. Kodak saw the importance of making this endeavor follow the same model as the NFL in both league structure and financial opportunities to be able to draw in large investors to establish franchises within the league, calling it a forever investment. And so that's where that decision really starts to come into play. Mm -hmm. Blizzard sought out potential team owners aiming to include teams that were localized to a geographic area. Blizzard believed having such local teams would spark more interest in esports from spectators and potential sponsors through new activities around supporting their team. A first meeting for prospective team owners was held at BlizzCon 2016 after the announcement of the league's creation, with New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft and Los Angeles Rams owner Stan Kroenke among the attendees. During the formative period, Blizzard hired Steve Bornstein, former president of ABC Sports, and CEO of NFL Network to serve as the company's eSports chair with particular emphasis on the broadcast and presentation of games played in the Overwatch League. And, and you'll see, if, if you've watched any of them or go back and watch them, you can see where that comes in. You can see where that quality and that, we'll even call it sportiness, of how they showcase it 
even just camera pans and sweeps and switching from player to player and getting those things, even replays, like how well they could do those things on the fly was definitely reminiscent of physical sports events. And what I think kept a lot of people there was this quality of not just like having a map, like just looking at like a big giant map and watching people win or lose. It's actually like seeing fans, seeing interactions of the players themselves together. And it worked for what it was before 2020. It worked really well. Because sometimes, and it's important to, to acknowledge esports as sports mm-hmm. because, I mean, it, it is elite players going and doing this, the best of the best. And yeah, it might be fresher and newer, but being able to see those breakdowns, what makes them special? I feel like that is the thing that people want to see when they watch these things happen. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the fast-paced nature of things like this eliminates the ability to really see those interesting moments. So when yeah. you have that production quality and you can do like the slow-mo replays and really have analysts that understand the game that can break it down mm-hmm. for people, it it just makes for a more interesting product. It really does. But little information about the league came out of Blizzard following the initial November 2016 announcement for the next several months, leading to some speculation that the league was having trouble. In May 2017, ESPN reported that the league had been having difficulties in signing franchises, which they ascribed to two issues. One, the high base cost of starting a franchise starting at $20 million with higher costs in more urban markets like New York City and Los Angeles, much higher than other esports league buy-ins. And two, the fact that there would be no revenue sharing until 2021, making recovery of the franchise costs difficult. These difficulties led to a delay for the start of the first season. However, during this time, Activision Blizzard was working behind the scenes to engage potential team owners, wanting to hold back as to provide large comprehensive announcements rather than trickles of information. Activision had seen the Kraft Group as a key team owner. Robert Kraft had been previously interested in investing into esports. He and Kotick had met earlier in 2013 when Kotick was looking to invest in an NFL franchise where Kraft told him they were looking to seek investment in an esports team. Kraft spent time over the next few years evaluating other esports competitions, but was not comfortable with their grassroots nature. But the Overwatch League, as Kotick had explained during BlizzCon 2016, caught his attention. By March 2017, Kraft and Activision had worked out the deal to secure the first team ownership group for the Overwatch League. Once the Kraft group agreed to support a Boston-based team, later known as the Boston Uprising, this had a snowball effect towards establishing six other teams. The Kraft group themselves helped to convince some of the other owners to buy into the Overwatch League. So if you really want to thank anyone, thank Tom Brady. (laughs) (laughs) Way to go, Tom. You know, it's crazy. Like 20 million, you think about that in terms of like buying NFL teams is like billions. Mm -hmm. There are some owners that have sort of been grandfathered in because they just happened their family got into the nfl yep uh you know when it was first beginning and this is a very similar situation to that 20 million of course is a very significant amount of money for instance 
Mark Cuban bought the Dallas Mavericks around 20 years ago for almost $300 million. Mm-hmm. Just a few weeks ago, or not a few weeks ago, just a little bit ago, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney bought a professional football team for like almost $3 million. So you can see like a big gap. I mean, it's not quite small like uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney were able to spend not quite as crazy as expensive as like an NBA or an NFL team, but sure. still significant enough to make people feel nervous, especially in this new venture. Mm-hmm. To support spectating on broadcast and streaming media, Blizzard implemented cosmetic modifications to the game. Each team was given dedicated character skins with their respective team colors, names, and logos to use in matches. Players outside of the league are able to purchase a character's team skin using OWL tokens, a special in-game currency added to the game a day before the launch of the first regular season. Teams get a portion of the revenue of their team's skins. OWL tokens were initially only obtainable through an in-game purchase with real currency. At the start of the second stage for the first season, however, Blizzard offered players tokens for watching the live broadcast of the games through any of the official channels. So just kind of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. Blizzard has also worked to create an AI-based cameraman that can follow the action of the game as well as select key instant replays. During regular season matches, Blizzard employs a team of about 80 to 100 people to manage the game and its broadcast, and this includes on-screen hosts and interviewers, play-by-play announcers, or shoutcasters, observers, who use the AI cameraman and monitor a match from several different angles to present the best view for audiences and broadcasting with technical support. Among those Blizzard has brought on to shoutcast matches include Christopher Monacristo Michaels, Eric DOA Lonquist, Matt Mr. X Morello, and Mitchell Uber Leslie. Blizzard released an Overwatch League app in early January 2018, just prior to the start of the first season, to provide schedules, results, highlights, and other details about the league's progress. Now, I'm, I'm glad that they've got these guys on here doing this, but the nicknames are corny, man. Listen, you got to go for it. You got to have a gamer name. Derek, are you a real gamer if you don't have a gamer name? I, I, I mean... I just don't know. This is one thing that I think separates the esports a <laughs> little bit from the the uh, physical sports. Mm-hmm. In that, like, I know of one guy that really has a nickname, and it's Booger McFarland, and <laughs> he's a joke because his name's Booger. But that's all that this reminds me of. Oh, that's fantastic! So, over the first season, the league acquired over two hundred million dollars in sponsorships and broadcast rights. Major sponsors include Intel, Omen by HP, Toyota, T-Mobile, and Spotify, with most deals valued at over $10 million. During the break, before the start of the second season, the league announced a multi-year partnership with Fanatics as the league's outfitter to make and sell team and owl-related clothing and other items. The first seven teams were revealed in July 2017, and additional teams announced in the months following. With its first 12 teams set by mid-December, Blizzard announced that its first season would run from January to June 2018, with a preseason in December 2017 and the championship game in July of 2018. In September of 2017, Blizzard announced that they would make permanent use of Studio One 
at the Burbank Studios in Burbank, California, which it converted into the Blizzard Arena, an esports venue which was initially used for both Overwatch contenders and Overwatch League matches. Having a dedicated arena was seen to help establish the Overwatch League as a more orchestrated event compared to other esports tournaments and to better connect players with their fans. Blizzard operated Overwatch contenders in the Blizzard Arena in October as a means to test the facility's capabilities and make modifications to improve both the players and audience's experience in time for the preseason of the Overwatch League in December. Blizzard's long-term plans for the league were to expand its geographic reach to have more teams, potentially up to 28, and establish worldwide stadiums and implement home-and-away team formats with teams traveling between these locations, similar to other physical professional leagues. Mm -hmm. And this concept was implemented for the third season, but eventually put to a stop after a few weeks due to COVID-19, with all 2020 home stand events canceled altogether. While there are still plans to expand to 28 teams, Nanzer said that they would maintain 20 teams for the third season in 2020 so that team owners can focus on the scheduling logistics first. And that, unfortunately, is like where we kind of stop with the Overwatch League or OWL. Um, COVID really, I think, put a huge dent in that. Or they just wanted to cash in and be like, sorry, we can't share revenue. It's 2021. That's when you guys were going to get revenue. Um, there's so much that can be behind that. And it came like, especially for this COVID came at the worst time when like this third season was like the season to like blow up. And I had talked to you, um, outside of the podcast and talked about that. Another hit was if you watched on Twitch, which is where I watched it, you got those owl coins every so often. And sometimes you were a lucky viewer and you got a hundred versus 10 as just, just part of watching it. And you could buy the cosmetics. Then season two or season three, I don't remember which one, they decided to switch to YouTube where they couldn't even offer that. YouTube didn't have like a link your account and get a thing. And it, the audience just dropped so significantly. And I think that's really what led to kind of this freezing of the Overwatch League to see if like, not only that, not doing Overwatch 2 or any of that stuff really hurt too, but just so much I think went into it, which in my opinion, is the best online viewing of an esports event ever. It's just unfortunate that this experiment just had one too many hiccups to really continue as a major viable thing. Well, and it's, you know, obviously it wasn't limited to just esports. Like there was the XFL, which people were excited for to come back. I think the CFL suffered as well. Minor League Baseball didn't have a season. So there were all kinds of sacrifices made. The MLB and NBA mm-hmm. did, I think, seasons without yeah. fans or very limited number of fans, like special guests only. And I think the NFL limited the sections that you could go to. So you could see where even those big, you know, hundreds of mm-hmm. millions of dollars, those teams, billions of dollars, those teams, are struggling to now pay their players. Yeah. Salaries were decreased in multiple leagues because of the lack of revenue. And so you, you something like this that's happening that early on 
it's really hard and it's upsetting because you start to build that momentum and obviously very unfortunate the COVID-19 pandemic affected way more important ways of life than this. Exactly. And, and they tried to do it. They tried to do the league in 2020 where to deal with ping issues and various other lag issues that you only competed against teams in your region, whether it was Korea, China, Europe, or North America. You pretty much only competed there, and it just wasn't the same. It's like, cool, you're facing the same team again. You faced them last week. <laughs> like, cool. Right. Like the NHL totally redid their divisions, too, mm-hmm. and, and made the divisions bigger and totally changed the schedules up. I mean... It really did impact all kinds of professional sports and sometimes made the like you lost a little bit of the rivalries. And for a young league like this, yeah, maybe you develop new rivalries. But if you're looking to gain fans and people who have already viewed that experience and like it and have seen the rivalries already developed, sometimes it's I don't know, it's it's just not as exciting to watch. And and the the real hope is that I, I hope that like Robert Kraft, who, who was the one who took the gamble. He took the major gamble to start this. I hope that doesn't discourage him to continue this in other games that may have the want to do this or discourage like major things to like take their game and be a huge team sport thing. Cause I mean, League of Legends does fantastic with it. It's, it's still been the best series. We had one in St. Louis actually a couple years ago for a spring LCS series. And it was so cool. You know, it took over one of our college stadiums and just, yeah, it's amazing. It's so I cool to that. see. And, and, and if, if fans of esports that don't know Robert Kraft, he, as the owner of the Patriots, has really invested a ton of money in that team. I feel like people should feel confident that he's going to be willing to keep investing money in teams. Because that organization in particular hires on like full-time chefs year-round to make sure diets are right for their players, Mm -hmm. all kinds of extra outside support. I mean, they really run that organization year-round and are always trying to improve their facilities from a a forward-thinking standpoint. So if there is going to be someone that helps to continue to develop this league... I think Robert Kraft is a is a good one, but we'll just kind of have to wait and see what happens because he can't do something like that alone. But exactly. I think that when he makes an investment in something like that, it's because he really believes in it. Yeah, and I think he knew the future. I mean, he was the one who's like, this is the future of a lot of spectators. And it was, it really was until, you know, we got smacked in the face with something we've never been smacked with before. Oh, yeah, so I loved it. So fun. Loved it. But let's let's pump it up literally and figuratively <laughs> with the music and sound section. That is uh the transition of the day. Hashtag yes. Pump it up. <laughs> what do you got for me, Derek? So the Overwatch soundtrack was primarily composed by a team of five. Derek Duke, Neil LaCree, Adam Burgess, Chris Velasco, and Sam Cardon. Most tracks were individually composed by a member of the group with certain exceptions and other outside input for specific tracks. For example, four of the core five had input on the cinematic intro, while the rest of the soundtrack had one to two composers per track, with Derek Duke making the most frequent appearances as the musical director. 
The soundtrack combines electronic music with more traditional symphonic elements that result in a fast-paced feel with large, overarching momentum from strings and bass. During this process, the composers worked with Aboriginal teams to try and blend their sounds depending on the location for a greater authentic experience. So, for example, if it was more of an Asian-themed map, they wanted to work with teams from those areas to try and just Mm -hmm. get an authentic map experience. Sure. In a segment for BlizzCon 2021, Derek Duke emphasized that regardless of what the piece of music was for, whether that be in-game or cinematics or what map it was from, sort of listening to that piece of music in its essence, trying to hear if somewhere there's a sense of hope or heroism that could help you figure out if it was right for the franchise. Sam Cardon later added, I think a theme is kind of like a thesis statement, and everything is derivative of that big idea. If you get that right, then everything else writes itself. Most of the team was in agreement that the most difficult arrangements were for the character cinematic shorts due to the environment and pacing being more specific to the scene events and trying to invoke emotions that would allow the viewers to better connect to the characters and their backstories. Most of the game's original tracks can be found on streaming platforms under various separate releases, including Overwatch Soundtrack, Overwatch Cities and Countries, Overwatch Heroes and Villains, and Overwatch Animated Shorts. And on top of all that stuff, there was just a little bit of controversy in the music development. Very small. In 2018, some Reddit users pointed out that a few of the tracks utilized in Overwatch had samples of other tracks, but it's possible that this was the result of collaborative efforts like we spoke about between Blizzard and the other Aboriginal teams or samples being sold to multiple artists and the controversy didn't gain a ton of traction outside of that Reddit post. Yeah, it's one of those things too, like you said, if you go hunting for it, you can find it and depending on if those were just samples that someone's selling and be like, oh, I got these things and can sell them to multiple things without exclusivity. Right. Because we see that we see that in like hip hop and rap music as well of sampling certain things or buying samples that someone makes as kind of like a composer of these things can be sold if not bought exclusively. And the cinematics to me are are really interesting uh, just outside of like the the normal soundtrack thinking, because we talked about in our last episode, Stardew Valley, just about there are certain elements within music that create like an airiness, like for spring. And so like in the Bastion uh, cinematic short, it's the same kind of thing. He's walking mm-hmm. through the woods, kind of having like flashbacks between spring and fire and all kinds of different elements. They really did try to capture mm-hmm. that same light airiness. And it's interesting to me that just looking at something visual and often coming to sort of the same conclusions about what that music is supposed to sound like. I just find that concept really interesting that, you know, you could draw those parallels between a soundtrack for a game like Stardew Valley and then a game like Overwatch. And a lot of these elements are going to sound, I think, familiar to people because these five core guys have worked on a ton of games for uh, blizzard they've done world of warcraft music but they've also worked on games like god of war and assassin's creed and there's going to be a lot of familiarity i think between this soundtrack and those other big sweeping you know big symphonic 
soundtracks as well. And one of the major things I know they focused on on the sound side of it is voice acting. They got some pretty big names in there, you know, such as like Matt Mercer, Anjali Bimani, Carolina Ravasa, you know, who have done a lot of projects in not only just the gaming sphere, but in just like animation and voiceover work as it is. And what I love is that, I mean, you see this in a lot of animation, but they take especially the facial features of a lot of these people and they'll incorporate it into that character. You kind of see these people as that character, especially when you, if you don't know who they are and you see them for the first time, you're like, oh, she does kind of like look, look like Symmetra. They do kind of look like, you know, McCree or Cassidy. And it's so much fun to see that. The other thing I really, really enjoyed, um, especially riding the hype train with Overwatch, is all of, uh, most, almost, almost, I'll say almost, all of the voice actors love their character and have gone to cons and voiced the character for people. They've done like silly YouTube clips together. A lot of them met up in different towns when they filmed and would do stuff. Like They're really passionate about this project. And you, and I, I don't want to keep using like rarely, but you rarely see that where a team continues on like in contact with each other, has events, meets up, does these projects for such a large scale. Especially when they're like when they voice other characters, for instance, of course, like you think of someone mm-hmm. that that voices the same video game character for a long time, of course, they're going to feel attached to that character and they're going to probably participate a little bit more. But sure. you have these these great widely used voice actors that for whatever reason feel very attached to these characters as well. And for them to be passionate mm-hmm. about it in that way. I think that stuff like that comes out in the voice acting. It really does. And, and it's just so cool to see it. And like, I think some of my favorites, they'll go to cons and they'll be like, all right, you <laughs> voice their character. And like, they've heard these lines so much and have done this. They're like, okay. And they'll hit like four of their like quips or something that they have in the game. And they, and they're all voice actors. So they all do like really well. And again, that's just something for the hype of it that really showcased how much their talent scout really put out for this, especially having the diversity. It's not just pick the top five people who are out right now. It's pick the people who match the character we've built. What region are they from? What's their ethnicity? What's their gender? You have to hit those marks with it. So it's really amazing to scout that out. And a lot of them, maybe they were a little lesser known because they, they aren't in a demo or a demographic that's always pushed out there. And it's cool to see and see them in future projects. Absolutely. So let me, let's talk about, let's talk about what could be cool, what's going to be fun eventually. It's Overwatch 2. Overwatch 2. So it was announced at BlizzCon on November 1st, 2019. The game will maintain a shared multiplayer environment between it and the original Overwatch so that the players in either game can compete together in the existing player versus player modes, retaining all unlocked cosmetics and other features. Jeff Kaplan stated that this was a major push he had to argue for in this player first standpoint to his superiors at Blizzard, given the current industry draw to 
put sales over playability. All new heroes, maps, and PvP modes will be added to both games to maintain this shared environment. At least four new heroes will be added, which includes Sojourn, a black Canadian Overwatch officer introduced in the Overwatch Archive seasonal events. A significant departure will be moving to a 5-on-5 PvP mode with a restriction of only allowing one tank in play on I a team. I call it. According to Aaron... I, I call it. What's up? All right. You're it. You, Derek is the official tank for it. Have fun. Just put the shield up. <laughs> <laughs> but according to Aaron Keller, the prior allowance for six players per team and two tanks made gameplay slower than they actually would have liked. And by moving to five players and removing one tank, they believe this will speed up that gameplay. This additionally simplified how much action there was to watch for both players and spectators. New maps were thus designed to include more options for cover due to the reduced presence of tanks. Heroes will have a general reworking within their classes to make the game faster. Damage heroes will have increased movement speed, while support heroes will all gain some type of passive self-healing skill. Tank heroes are expected to undergo the largest change to make them able to take on more offensive roles. Heroes are also undergoing a visual update to reflect a few years of in-game time that has passed between the events of Overwatch and Overwatch 2. So making them, you know, a couple years change, hair different, a little older maybe, some visuals that give an update to it. Absolutely. And, you know, good on Kaplan for wanting to really push having the compatibility between Overwatch and Overwatch 2. I feel like it's, it's kind of a way to actually produce sales that you might not get because mm-hmm. sometimes players just want to play with their friends and it's not always easy to buy the newest, latest, greatest thing or whatever. And and so often games are pushing for totally new installments that you do have to buy again. And a lot of times those updates, I mean, if they're close enough, it's hard to keep justifying spending that money. So for him to allow old Overwatch players and especially for them to not lose that progress that they made playing Overwatch that entire time and still be able to play with the new players, I think is very significant. And I'd love to see more games uh, head in that direction. But mm-hmm. Especially in this era where so many new, especially AAA titles, are broken on release. It's like, why do I want to pay that right now? I st- like, maybe I still want to play Overwatch. And I want to try out some of the new characters for it, but I'm wary that the game's going to be stuttery, broken, connectivity issues, you know, or have nothing to do. Very much like Halo Infinite or Battlefield that's come out. Like it's, 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 it, it's good for wariness for that, but also really cool. Like you said, like maybe I can't afford it right now, but I want to play with my friends who all have the new thing. And exactly. And, and, and we then, might have talked and, about it in a post show. I, I can't remember for sure. I think it was Halo Infinite. It might have just been our uh, return welcome back episode. But just mm-hmm. kind of talking about the 10 year life cycles when you've spent a lot of time yeah. and effort on a game and then for it to just kind of end and be left with nothing and it be empty, I think is it's a difficult experience like sports games. have been doing that for a long time, but just on a yearly cycle. Um, and especially with like these ultimate team modes and things like that for a game like this to allow those unlockables to extend into the next cycle and the next 
iteration of the game. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah, absolutely. So the game will have persistent player versus environment modes, or PvE, and these are similar to the special seasonal events, which will feature four-player cooperative missions against computer-controlled opponents. In this mode, players can gain experience for the hero they're using, and at certain experience levels, unlock new passive skills called talents that boost the hero's current abilities, allowing them to customize how the hero plays. At least two PvE modes will be added, a story-based mission mode, where players are limited to their hero selection and replaying missions based on Overwatch's lore, and hero missions, which allow all heroes to be used in fending off waves of enemies at various locations. Blizzard anticipates that Overwatch 2 will ship with over 100 different missions, utilizing new maps as well as existing multiplayer maps, expanded out to include new areas and adding in dynamic effects, such as night and day modes and weather effects. Maybe we'll get some more of those tornadoes that you like, Alex. Oh, <laughs> who knows? Give me a little tuck-tuck tornado <laughs> action. We're good. Enemy types will be expanded out from the null sector robotic opponents used during seasonal PvE mods, adding in new types with unique behavior. Overwatch 2 is expected to release for Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch, although there is currently no set release window. Kaplan stated that they were more concerned about the quality of the product than timeliness of the release. Investor documents released in November 2021 had reported that an initial plan release window in 2022 had been pushed to at least 2023, intended for, quote, giving the team some extra time to complete production and continue growing their creative resources to support the titles after launch. Kaplan anticipated that Overwatch and Overwatch 2 will ultimately merge into a single product to avoid having engine differences that affect the player experience. So it'll be interesting. And at this point, so Jeff Kaplan at this point has left. So we have a new creative director who has taken over. It's been, and I'm not going to say it's in development hell. It obviously got hit with COVID. It got hit with a bunch of stuff. But when you have your original IP of Overwatch 1, when you're not producing new content, Except for the seasonal events, which we've talked about are the same thing, but add some new skins and sprays and stuff. And we just had a new event for Reaper. There's not much for players to come back to if they're not set in like loving the game. Like if this is like, let's say you and I, Derek, just love to play. This is our weekend game. We'd probably still stick with it no matter what for a while because we're just playing to have fun. But if you're trying to jump on to like do weekly missions, earn, you know, the new skins, what's really drawing me in besides just like it's what we like to do? What's bringing new players or keeping old players who are just like, I'm going to move on to, the, to this. Well, better. and also in the multiplayer experience, you start to, I think, deal with like slower load in times because you're playing against less players and it's harder to find matches and all kinds of things that then drive more players away because others have left. And it's just sort of the natural life cycle of games sometimes. But hopefully they're able to get Overwatch 2 out or at least, you know, decide to release more content that bring people in. I think Mm -hmm. that after you announce a sequel, though, even with new content, you're going to just lose some of that momentum in general. Well, that's the issue with having a live service game is that you're like, Overwatch 2 is coming. Like, awesome, man. Can't wait to play it. And then when it gets delayed, 
and you don't put anything new out for the game that's currently here that you want to continue a live service for, like we haven't seen a new character since 2020. Yeah. So what's, what are you doing besides balancing, adding some other like death matches and a couple of things? It's not much, but the legacy still lives on for sure. So I'm very excited and hopeful for possible 2023, maybe this year for Overwatch 2, but I am excited to play it. And I hope you guys are too. If, if you are a fan of Overwatch and have fallen off, kind of like I have, I log on rarely, once in a while if I'm like hankering for a match or two. But I am excited to see where it goes. And it has left a legacy. It started an amazing esports, you know, network um, that unfortunately crumpled really not under its own guiles, a little bit of everything coming to it. But it's made a hefty dollar. And so let's jump down and talk about that and talk about what it did, where it's going, and some of the stuff that came out of it. So before its release, Overwatch experienced a period of pre-launch attention not typically expected. Game Revolution noted that, quote, Overwatch's reputation has quickly permeated through cyberspace, attracting attention from people who may not traditionally put down $40 to $60 each time a new first-person shooter releases. The game's open beta, which attracted 9.7 million players, was very heavily covered by the media. In a week from its launch, Blizzard reported over 7 million Overwatch players with a total accumulated playtime of 119 million hours. Baby. Blizzard also reported that more than 10 million players by mid-June had just continued to insanely increase its player base with... 60 million players as of April 2021. The NPD Group, a video game industry tracking firm, reported that Overwatch was the third best-selling retail video game in the U.S. in May 2016 on the month of its release and was the top-selling game in June 2016. They later reported it was the seventh-highest-selling game by revenue in the United States for all of 2016. With digital sales, Overwatch was the fastest selling game during its release month. They estimated that it brought in about 269 million in revenues from digital sales worldwide in May and over 565 million in sales on PCs by the end of 2016, making it the highest grossing paid game that year. In Activision Blizzard's quarterly earnings report for Q1 2017, the company reported that Overwatch revenues had exceeded $1 billion. Not surprising. Mm -hmm. The eighth such property owned by the company to do so. In June 2016, Game Tricks, a South Korean internet cafe survey website, reported that Overwatch overtook League of Legends as the most popular game played across 4,000 of their PC banks at the time. In 2018, Overwatch raised over $12.7 million for the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, which they generated from selling a special pink-colored Mercy skin where all proceeds went towards the organization. By July 2019, total in-game spending in Overwatch exceeded $1 billion as estimated by Superdata, the sixth Activision Blizzard product to reach this metric. Overwatch's fan base has been noted to be generally kind and supportive. Daniel Starkey of Wired wrote, Where many fresh games struggle with an endless stream of player complaints and developer prodding, Overwatch's community is vivacious and jubilant. A gamer with cerebral palsy publicly praised the game's customizable controls, 
which let him make his first snipe in a video game. One of Blizzard's artists, Roman Kenny, drew concept art based on one player's daughter's original Overwatch character design. Blizzard altered one of the game's maps to include a tribute to an avid Chinese fan of the game who died from injuries while trying to stop a motorcycle theft on the day before the game's public release. In November 2017, the Belgian Gaming Commission announced that it was investigating Overwatch alongside Star Wars Battlefront 2 to determine whether loot boxes constituted unlicensed gambling. Many Asian and European countries view loot boxes as a form of gambling and have since decided to make them illegal for companies to sell directly to their consumers in their games. Blizzard has chosen to work with these regions to follow their gambling laws while staying true to their microtransaction-focused business model. Within China, Blizzard has allowed their players to purchase in-game currency and receive loot boxes as a gift. In addition to this loot box change, China has required Blizzard to publicly disclose the exact odds of winning each tier of item within said loot box. While initially loot boxes were not seen as gambling within the United States, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has recently decided to investigate the legality of the projected soon-to-be $50 billion industry of microtransactions. So yeah, a lot to take in with that. Of like, Overwatch has started out as a great community, trying to include everyone, and unfortunately comes from a company um, that has not always practiced that value, as we've seen um, as of late with a lot of sexual harassment lawsuits and plenty of things trying to ask and oust Bobby Kotick as CEO for allowing these things to happen um, under him, as well as, as Derek had mentioned, loot boxes and trying to figure out, is it gambling? Is it not? Overwatch, I think, does it one of the best ways where it's just cosmetics. You can earn them by playing and there's nothing in there that's like, oh, has has to be behind a paywall. So it's coming on its ways. It's a great game for what it is. But Derek, as always, tell the people, why do we choose this game? What do you think of it? Well, I think that it's an interesting game to talk about just for some of those reasons that you just mentioned. Um, video games in general are still sort of like an emerging market. More, It's just a very young concept, in generally speaking. And so there are so many high-growth issues that come along with that mm -hmm. some of the things that we get from it are great some of them are really terrible obviously the harassment lawsuits and things that just shouldn't be happening in 2022 continuing to happen in this you know growing industry and then of course trying to balance what is really like the ethical ways to make money within these video games, trying to maximize profits while still sort of giving what is an art form or a sport or whatever you want to decide that it is, whatever a video game means to you. But then we also get really cool things like the eSport leagues. And not only that, just like a really cool conceptual game of like, we want a first-person shooter. We don't want everything to be, like, romanticizing militant conflicts. We want games to be a little bit fun without having to be super dark all the time. And so the end result is a game like Overwatch, a game that's really a lot of fun and I think was really fresh for players when it came out and has 
an amazing following even to this day, even with some of the player base dying off and even with, you know, they lost Alex. So that's a big loss, but it's true. It's true. You know, hopefully we'll see Overwatch 2, like you said, later this year, maybe in 2023. And if it's 2024 or at some point in the future, you know, I have full confidence in them to be able to turn that around and do the right things. And, you know, losing the creative director, I think, does make some of that stuff fall into question a little bit. But having the financial backing of professional physical sports Mm -hmm. league owners that have experienced how to grow in those businesses, having them back e-leagues and things like that. I think the future is bright for games like Overwatch, even if it isn't Overwatch 2. Absolutely. Uh, You know, like you said, I think they know it's so far gone now. They can't, if if this game comes out and it's not perfect, they've lost everyone. They have to take the time now to make sure that they have, a great game that can either bring people back, bring new people in, change it up. So I'm hoping for it. It's been a game that got me through a lot of years, spent a lot of time. I'm like level 750 or 60 in this game. Um, so I put a lot of time and effort into it and really, really enjoyed it. It was just such a fun time. It's furiating at times, but such a fun time. But if I had to give it a rating, I would give it the amount of times the Genji on your team jumps into the enemy and starts to die spamming. I need healing versus how much our healers truly care about this player. And really we don't times a million times. How cool the snow is on the snow maps times the 50 billion dollar industry of microtransactions divide that by how many cool santa skins i have which is a lot out of 100 of course of course thank you very good rating thank you very much sorry i interrupted your flow no no that was good that was good that was that was nice ad lib to the flow i appreciate it it's the first time it's been a collab on it but it was well worth it it got us to my point, uh, minus a couple numbers. We're, we're really good. Yeah. Yeah, no. Solid review. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. Our intro and outro music was composed by our friend Evan Barr. And our new cover art for our podcast was given to us by Aaron Shattuck. As always, we are a beautiful team of people who are just quite beautiful, as we say. And we also have people who support us in our Discord and our socials, and especially on our Patreon. I want to thank those people today with Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Nick Hyman, McChief, Climbing Spork, and Mr. 1898. And there are plenty of tiers to check out for various perks. Again, I say it every time. One of my favorites right now is running our D&D adventure with several of you. And I'm just having a blast. One, getting to know a lot of people in our community. And two, having fun killing some dragons. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. So if you haven't yet, just drop us a review. We love to hear from you guys, and it helps us out a lot. And as always, check out our socials, Instagram, Twitter, Discord, and then check us out on Twitch over at twitch.tv slash Sourman70, that's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0, and Derek 
over at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. That is thebakerman247. You took my last part. I did. I stole so, it. I done stole it. I don't know if you guys know I done stole yeah, it. Alex stole it. So thank you guys. It's been a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. thank you for stopping by. As always, this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kendall. Oh, and I'm your host, Derek Baker. Yeah, see, we can't, we can't this do this. has now been the end of this episode. This was a beefy boy. We have lost our minds. <laughs> Thank you all. We really appreciate it. You're the best. Thanks, guys. See ya.